There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And tonight we have a really, really exciting show. And I say that because we credit ourselves and that credit we sort of pride ourselves in teaching our audience things about investigation and about homicide cases. Tonight, we're going to be part of the people that are on that learning curve because we have two amazing academics. I guess that's the term I can use for them. Uh, and they're both professors at Ramapo College in New Jersey, but more importantly, in the field of investigative genetic genealogy. I know that's a mouthful, and I'm not going to attempt to explain it to you. So let me first bring on uh, Professor Karen Binder from Ramapo College. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, it's, it's so great to have you because this field is just, you know, one of the things that before I get, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it seems like civilians have taken this science away from law enforcement. And I don't say that in a bad way. I say that because they've leapt with it. Le they are leaping and leaps and bounds past law enforcement and the point where law enforcement is going to have to go to the civilian academics and scientists with help for help in solving these cold cases through genetic uh, genealogy. I would say that we're not ahead of them. I, I, we're um, a tool in the law enforcement tool belt. So just like law enforcement has for years used consultants in different areas, handwriting analysis or isotope testing, we're another arm that they can reach for and, and use. No, it's it's fantastic. But we we've had. Uh, people on from the, the the DNA field, specifically Barbara Butcher, who was the chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for 26 years. And she had told us that based on 9-11 and all of the bodies that needed to be identified, that DNA had advanced three generations from that, you know, from the attacks. Your thoughts? Certainly there have been some huge advances in the last five years because of the um, the utilization of what we call SNP testing, which is an advanced type of DNA testing to solve crimes and identify human remains. So that to me would be the biggest leap that's been made recently. No, oh, well, that, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm gonna bring on your, your colleague and the director of the program, uh, Dr. David Gurney, who also uh, has, a, has a law degree, just to mention that he, they, some people just love school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Doc, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It certainly is. It's certainly great to have you guys. I, I wanted just to mention a couple of things. Now, I know that uh, you were from um, University Arizona University, and you were part of their Innocence Project. And we want to make it clear that this technology can also be used to clear innocent people that have been maybe... Uh, falsely convicted. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, before coming to Rambo College, I was a fellow at the Wrongful Conviction Clinic at the University of Arizona. 
Uh, and our mission was to help people who had viable claims of innocence uh, to prove that so that they could be exonerated. Uh, because, of course, getting the wrong people out of prison is just as important as putting the right people in prison. Um, and, and this methodology, investigative genetic genealogy, really does have the power to help in that field, as well as uh, ensuring that perpetrators, the right people, are behind bars. Absolutely. You know, I, I took some notes, um, of course, uh, when I listened to C.C. Uh, Moore, and I, I don't want mean to ruin your thunder, but she seems to be the foremost uh, spokesperson in, in this field. And one of the things she said in an interview on CNN in regards to the, the, the Brian Koberger, the Idaho four students who were murdered, was that genetic genealogy should never be used as the basis for a search warrant or the only evidence that you have against someone. It should be used in addition to, Karen, you want to comment on that? Sure. First of all, you're not stealing our thunder at all. We're totally friends with Cece Moore and we admire her and we uh, work alongside her in the field. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, I think that would be true in any investigation where DNA is part of the evidence that's collected. Um, DNA should never be the only thing that um, leads to an arrest or a conviction. Um, I'm not the law expert here, so I'll let Professor Gurney go on with that, but the traditional investigative methods are really, really important adjacent to whatever investigation involves DNA. Yeah, just, just picking up on that a little bit, I, I think it's really important to distinguish the kind of work that we do from traditional DNA analysis. So I think a lot of people, when they hear investigative genetic genealogy and they're not familiar with it, they might think that we're really just sort of a branch of what they've heard about in the news and all the crime shows and all the news stories they've seen of people being arrested based on DNA, which has been going on since you know uh, the early 90s at least. But what we are doing is actually trying to find family members of a suspect. That is where we start. Uh, and then we build out some family trees to try, try to narrow in on the individual. But it's different than traditional DNA analysis because we're not taking uh, a sample from the suspect from a crime scene and putting it into a database where we think that suspect is going to appear. And so the reason that CC and all the rest of us, I think, uh, believe that this should only be a lead is that when we come up with an individual or, or maybe many individuals who might be suspects uh, in the crime, that has to be verified by going out and getting a direct DNA result from those suspects and comparing it to the crime scene sample. And that's the evidence that should be presented in court because that's the evidence that can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Karen, would you explain or just give us a, a sort of an overview? Say, let's say you get a case, okay? G give us a little overview on how you would proceed. Sure. So um, one thing to keep in mind is that we are not forensic DNA experts. We are investigative genetic genealogists. So our specialty is really family tree building and analysis of a lot of publicly available data to find a candidate given a DNA sample. So that really, our, our work has to involve um, forensic DNA experts. So initially, if an agency were to approach me, whether it's a suspect case or an unidentified remains case, the first thing that I would wanna know is what type of sample is available. Is it blood? Is it semen? Is it uh, an artifact that was found at the crime scene. That's um, the first thing that I would want to know. The second thing I would want to know is what testing has already been done. Because before pursuing investigative genetic genealogy DNA testing, 
the traditional DNA testing should really be done first. So that's your um, STR testing, a traditional DNA test, and entry into CODIS, which is the database that is traditionally used in traditional DNA testing to match a previous crime scene DNA or a known suspect, a known offender. Um, that needs to be done before advancing to investigative genetic genealogy. So once I have those two questions covered, has the CODIS entry been done and what type of sample is available, that's when I would facilitate communication between the agency and a forensic DNA lab that performs SNP testing, which is the type of SNP testing where we get a profile. After the testing process is over, which can take weeks to months to years sometimes, uh, that's when we finally get our DNA profile. And there are two main things that the investigative genetic genealogist gets from this. One is a ancestry or admixture heritage report. That is the thing on a person's DNA test that tells them, for example, you're 26% Irish and 30% Scottish and 12% Egyptian, you know, something like that. We get a report very similar to that for our subject, whether it's an unidentified remains case or a suspect in a violent crime. We get um, a heritage report similar to that. The other thing that we get, which is really the important piece, the, the most um, where the bulk of our work lies is the genetic match list. So we get a list of genetic matches for the subject that we're studying from closest to most distant. And our goal is to build out the family trees of those genetic matches, find connections between them, and then build the family tree forward to sort of reverse engineer the family tree of the subject that we're trying to identify. When we come to a, su a, a subject, a candidate, we provide that as an investigative lead to the agency. And that's when they pursue a DNA test for that person or their close relatives to confirm that that's the right person. Wow. Before I bring the other two gentlemen on, where, where did the, um, I know, you know, there's different types of DNA tests. It started out with RFLP, restriction fragment length polymorphism, PCR, polymerase chain reaction, uh, STR, short tandem repeats. Where did the SNP come from and how long has it been with us? So SNP testing has been done for, uh, I mean, the most popular use of it before investigative genetic genealogy was really for um, healthcare related things and for um, commercially available DNA testing. So for example, your ancestry DNA or your 23andMe kit that you buy online is also utilizing SNP testing. And it's analyzing a lot more areas of the genome than what a traditional DNA test looks at. So your STR test that is uploaded into CODIS uses 10 to 20 something markers. Whereas a SNP test uses hundreds of thousands or even millions of DNA markers. So it's really a, a, like a high resolution photo versus a low image, a low resolution image from your Samsung flip phone in 2005. Um, we're, we're able to see not only direct matches of the source, the subject, we can see their third cousins, their fourth cousins, their fifth cousins, their sixth cousins, and so on. It is so, it's so amazing to me. It really is. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely uh, nothing close to a scientist, <laughs> but this is like, it's so incredible. This is like, I could compare this to, you know, 
a breakthrough like Thomas Edison or, you know, <laughs> no, it really is. I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you know, say it's not, it's really that amazing what it's going to do for mankind. It really is. Yeah. I, I actually think that's a good way to think about it. Um, I mean, the, when I'm teaching my students about this, what I always say is that it took really 10 years almost from the adoption of direct-to-consumer DNA testing back in 2007, approximately, it took about 10 years for some pioneering women, really, to figure out, hey, wait a minute, we can use this exact same methodology that people are using to find their uh, relatives, to find their uh, biological parents, to identify these crime scene samples that don't have a hidden CODIS. And it sort of seems obvious to us now, now that it's available, we think, well, of course you could do that. But there was that gap during which nobody really recognized that that was a possibility. And so in that way, it is uh, an amazing discovery because I think the most amazing discoveries are the ones that seem obvious in retrospect. But it took a few you know, geniuses, really, or a few pioneers to really see that insight. It's always that wise guy genius that comes up with it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to invite my other two uh, compadres in here. Uh, right now, I'd like to uh, invite my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing very well, and this stuff is just so exciting. Uh, very, very interesting. I'm excited to uh, throw a few questions at the guests. Well, you'll have your opportunity. And also from uh, retired NYPD sergeant and also from academia, Professor Michael Geary, a professor at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. And Mike also uh, picked up a law degree along his travels. So uh, welcome to the show, Mike. Billy, thank you for having me. And thank you to our guests. Thank you very much. Uh, this, this is so fascinating. Phil, I know you're chomping at the bit. I'm going to give you, can, you can ask any question you'd like of, our, of one or both of our guests. It, the, the reason that this is so, um, you know, interesting and exciting to me, I was in the heart of my career, uh, you know, in the detective bureau in the NYPD uh, around 89, 90, 1989, 1990, when we started to first hear about the DNA technology, they were able, able to tell you if it was human blood, non-human blood, male, female. And then as time went on, it got a little bit better. And now to think uh, on a current case like uh, the Brian Kohlberger case in Idaho, where four people were slain, they took a little piece of touch DNA off of the knife sheet, knife sheet that was recovered at the scene, and they were able to tie it to his dad. Now, again, Cameron, I'm just going to put this towards you, the question. Um, you talked about it could go fifth or sixth cousin, and the, the difference between the STR and the IgG, I guess, when you, you laid it out, you said uh, 10 or 20 uh, markers as opposed to possibly millions. What brought that about? How did we get to that point? Well, as I mentioned, it has been around for a while, um, but it's the testing has been used for other uses previously. So in 2017, um, a few people all at the same time, C.C. Moore, uh, Barbara Ray Venter, and uh, Margaret Press and Colleen Fitzpatrick of the DNA Doe Project um, all were working separately on using this for investigative cases. So um, unidentified human remains and also suspects in violent crime. So that was the first time that um, laboratories, forensic DNA laboratories began accepting um, samples from law enforcement to use SNP testing for something that wasn't healthcare and wasn't direct to consumer DNA testing. 
And so it was really just, as David said, people having that pioneering idea to utilize uh, a, a method that's already been used for other um, purposes in DNA testing for this purpose. Professor Mike, you got a question? I just want to make a really uh, comment. Uh, you, Dr. David had mentioned about CC Moore and the idea that you should not, you know, make it, have a conviction based solely on, you know, uh, DNA evidence. And uh, it, it got me looking. I went back to look at the um, Washington State University's uh, police officer, uh, the, uh, the, um, the affidavit that he submitted in support of the uh, search warrant for Brian Koberger's Washington State University um, apartment. And he, he uh, basically piggybacked on top of the original affidavit written by the um, Moscow uh, Police Department uh, investigator. But it was a very little small little uh, tidbit at the very end of the search warrant application where he said, uh, he's the, uh, this is the Washington State University police officer. He says to the court, I'm, I'm specifically asking the court not to consider the supplemental DNA disclosure as evidence supporting the existence of probable cause. The reason for this request is that if the DNA results are some, you know, sometime in the future held inadmissible, um, such a ruling would not impact the findings of probable cause for this warrant. And, and uh, I think that's a terrific way to go about it, is that you can't rest your entire case on DNA, uh, um, and uh, you must have something else to support uh, even probable cause, let alone uh, the level for conviction, which is proof beyond reasonable doubt. I think that's a great safeguard, and I'm glad that, that uh, you know you guys in the field um, understand that that's a, a really good safeguard for our civil liberties, and hopefully we won't have uh, as many uh, false convictions as we've had in the past. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really good point to bring up. Um, the Kohlberger case, uh, you know, I think we're still sort of learning a little bit about exactly when, what went on there. But one of the most surprising things from the probable cause affidavit was to see how much traditional investigation went into that case. And it really seems like they could have solved it using just traditional techniques, uh, following the security cameras, getting witness reports, because he was such a sloppy stupid criminal, really, uh, surprisingly, perhaps, given that he was pursuing a PhD. Um, but the, the genetic genealogy uh, and even the traditional genealogy or the traditional DNA in that case, it's kind of like the linchpin. You know, it, it'll be the centerpiece of the case if they end up using that in court. But it sounds like it might not even be necessary in this case. You know, guys, I want to play a little bit of uh, CeCe Moore, her interview on CNN. Uh, I'm going to remove everyone from the screen so this will. Uh... This mean single source of male DNA, which I'm reading from the affidavit. It means there were no other DNA detected on that, meaning sometimes you can have a mixture. You can have multiple people's DNA. You want to have single source DNA, if at all possible, because that really just ties that one person to that item. Now, it was likely that this was touch DNA. 
Certainly it's possible there was blood. They didn't tell us what type of DNA, but most likely it was touch DNA. And that would typically be just a few skin cells. This might've been a very small amount of DNA, but because of today's technological advances, we can detect even the tiniest bit of DNA. How reliable is touch DNA if it is skin cells in comparison to say blood? It's a great question. It is more transferable. So of course you would like to have blood. You would like to have semen or saliva and they might, you know, they haven't shown all their cards. We don't know all that they have, but touch DNA, now that we can use it because of the sensitivity of our equipment, it also means you have to be more cautious about using DNA as your only evidence. So it's a really positive thing that they clearly have other evidence. This is just one piece of it. We have seen DNA, touch DNA transfer in other cases. Of course, it's fairly rare, but it is something that you have to be aware of and make sure that there are other aspects of the case also pointing at the same person. Cece, good news, I guess. It's hard to commit murder without leaving something behind. That's right. Yeah, I've been saying this for weeks. That type of violent, intimate crime, it is virtually impossible not to leave something behind, even if you are a criminology PhD student. So I am not at all surprised they were able to find something. Even if he tried hard not to leave something, you still would. And that is great news, because what it means is that anyone who perpetrates this type of crime in the future should be aware that they will be identified, they will be caught. There really is no reason that we should see serial killer, serial rapist moving forward. This guy you know, potentially could have become a Ted Bundy or even a Zodiac, not identified 50 years later. But because of the DNA technology, the advances that we're seeing, both in investigative genetic genealogy and the ability to use tiny amounts of DNA, we can identify someone, whether they are in the law enforcement database or not. Cece, the, the cases that you have cracked for which you have become famous are the cases that necessitate you putting together with, in connection with a private lab, a very complicated family history, family tree, and tracing back cousins and generations. That doesn't seem to be what took place here. Well, I don't think we can reach that conclusion yet. Investigative genetic genealogy is simply a tip. It's a lead generator. It should never be used as evidence against a suspect. And so it is proper that it would have been left out of the affidavit, in my opinion, because it should not form the basis of an arrest warrant. And so even though they didn't put it in there, I don't think we can rule it out. We don't know whether it was what initially identified him as a person of interest, and then they looked more closely at that tip about the car, or it could have gone the other way, where they identified him through that tip about the car, and at the same time, they were working on the genetic genealogy and may have built his family tree to see if it was consistent with what they were seeing. I have done that in some cases. If there are persons of interest, you can very quickly rule them out or potentially not be able to exclude them, which is what would have happened in this case. Maybe they could have co connected him to 
one or more of those matches, maybe a second, third, fourth cousin, and said, look, you know, this is somebody who is a strong person of interest. So I think there's still a lot for us to learn on what happened here. I do think it is highly likely that an advanced private outside lab was used, at least somehow in this case. You know, we've all been hearing whispers of this. There's been lots of leaks that investigative genetic genealogy was used. So I do right. think that they were at least trying to or in the process and, of doing and, so. And fascinating, really fascinating. And, you know, we um, we've said it from the beginning of this case and like because of uh, discovery, obviously, the um, prosecution hasn't released all of the evidence they have. And we almost, and I think CC Moore would agree with us that there's probably like a 99% chance that uh, Brian Koberger left his own DNA, whether it was blood evidence, because when you kill someone with a knife, there's also a very, very high chance that you cut yourself. And he killed four people with a knife. So therefore we believe that there's like a 99% chance that there's blood DNA in there. And if that, is the case, I think uh, that's very, very powerful evidence against him. Dr. David, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think CeCe is absolutely right to point out that it's going to be increasingly difficult, I think, for would-be serial killers to um, have multiple victims uh, going forward, because unless you are somehow able to eliminate not just body fluids, but tiny little skin cells that you left behind, uh, law enforcement's going to catch up with you. Um, so this is sort of one of the, the amazing things about this. I think it, it has the potential to really cut down on the kinds of horrible crimes that we've heard about from decades past. You know, one of the things also is that they've there has still been a lot of conjecture that possibly Brian Koberger is a serial killer. And they won't maybe know that for a while because they have to compare his DNA against CODIS, the forensic DNA in CODIS, which could be a voluminous job to do. You know, it's a different thing to compare his DNA and see if it's in CODIS, but to compare it, you know, there's two types of DNA, offender and forensic. They compare it again. Look, there could be hundreds of crime scenes that he could potentially be a match to, but that could take a long time to check all of those out. Karen, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, not only there's there's so many, you know, limitations, how many U.S. cities have rape kit back, backlogs, how many um, cities are backed up in their traditional DNA testing, um, all of that, those things are factors. And also, um, you know, a big, a, a big holdup for many agencies is funding. So many agencies don't even have the funding to pursue traditional DNA testing, and certainly not SNP DNA testing, um, which is much more expensive than traditional DNA testing. So um, it's possible that there are crime scenes that this man has visited um, that even traditional DNA testing hasn't been performed and thus wouldn't have been matched to him so far. You know, Karen, as you said that, I thought of one of the most horrific cases that we covered this last year, and that was of Eliza Fletcher, who was a jogger, a mother of two kids she went out jogging every, she was a, a, a teacher at an elementary school and uh, some career criminal targeting her, grabbed her and was attempting to rape her and kill and murdered her. 
and shot her in the head. And it just so happened that he had a rape case against him where the DNA wasn't submitted in a timely fashion. And had it been submitted in a timely fashion, he would have been in jail or in prison for that crime and wouldn't have been able to commit this one. So we can all see the power of this tool uh, in identifying real bad people and putting them where they belong. Phil, you got any questions? Yes, I do. Uh, Dr. David uh, Gurney, um, they talked about the uh, touch DNA on the knife sheet uh, that was really pivotal in the case against Brian Kohlberger. Um, we talked about the transfer. Can you maybe explain about that? I mean, if it's, if it's, uh, we would obviously like to have blood or some type of a body fluid or a skin cell, but the touch DNA seems to be what was found on that knife sheet. And is it transferable? That was one of the questions that Bill and I talked about uh, before we went on the air. Is it transferable and how would it be transferred? Yeah, I, I mean, so for this question, I, I think I have to put on my wrongful conviction hat uh, because touch DNA and its ability to transfer uh, from person to person, from object to person, uh, is in some ways been the elephant in the room for DNA for a long time. Uh, there's a, a case, uh, I believe it was out of Yale University, maybe Stanford. Uh, it's a famous case where a woman was found murdered in a lab. And uh, the police went in and they took DNA swabs and she'd also been raped. And so they found on her panties uh, DNA that belonged to a third party. They ran that DNA through CODIS and it came back to a guy who had previously been convicted of uh, serious crimes. And so, of course, you're going to think as law enforcement or any reasonable person would, well, this is the guy, right? So they go to the guy's house and it turns out he's dead and he was dead at the time of the crime. So it couldn't possibly have been him. So how did his DNA get there? Well, it turns out when they did some research that he had been a janitor at that building in that lab years before, and his DNA had gotten stuck behind, you know, he had touched something behind a counter that never got cleaned, and she fell behind that same counter, and that part of her body rubbed on that. And so that just shows how uh, easy it can be in the right circumstances for DNA to transfer from an object to a person. Uh, and so I think Cece was very, uh, it was very good of her to point out the fact that the more advanced DNA technology gets, the more able we are to, you know, use uh, wet vac to pick up tiny, the tiniest bits of DNA left behind, the more important it's going to be that there is other kinds of evidence that ties a suspect to a scene. Because it could be possible for any one of us right now to, uh, you know, go and get gas at the gas station, pick up the handle, put it back, and then the next guy comes comes by, picks up the handle, puts it back, and then goes out and commits a crime and ends up leaving a teeny piece of our DNA behind at the crime scene. And if the only thing that law enforcement was using to connect somebody to the crime scene was DNA, it's very possible that an innocent person could be implicated. And so I'm very glad to see that in the Brian Kohlberger case, they are relying on more than just this tiny bit of touch DNA. Absolutely. Great point. Lula Morocco, thank you so much for the $10 super sticker. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. We also have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. We also have... Uh, YouTube channel members, where you can count them five different membership levels, and you see the folks in the with the green font 
they're part of our YouTube channel. Folks, this is so fascinating because it's it is it's not just the future of law enforcement technology and investigative technology. It's here. It is here. And we're going to have Karen and David talk about this the sites that they're allowed to use when they're searching for say a missing person or if someone wants to find their adoptive parents or a missing sibling as opposed to when they're looking for criminal matches, which uh, uh, there's a whole different set of rules. During the 1948-1952, our government was searching for a system for television. Sounds simple, but that system was so important to pick the correct one because it led to what we see now today in television. I draw that parallel because it's so important now for the people that are really the pioneers of this technology and the, the legal analysts to write forth protocols that will have the scientific technology stand up in court and be able to stand up against an, an offender. Uh, and if it's written sloppily, if we don't cross our T's and dot our I's, that could happen. So that's why we brought these two great guests on tonight. And I, I think that one of the things... Uh, Mike, I, I want you to uh, address this since you are an attorney. Uh, asking the questions, how do you proceed? How do you write the protocols to this situation and make it stand up in court? So, and Doc, you, you're an innocence project guy. You know better than anyone else. You should probably be one of the attorneys that writes the protocols because you know both sides of the fence. Uh, Mike? Yeah, protocols are, are probably, you know, written primarily by and the, the people who are doing the collecting and and the people who are doing the analyzing and the keeping of the DNA samples. And it, it over the course of many years, I remember back in the late 80s when I first started my master's degree and we we're I was hearing for the first time about DNA analysis in England and they talked about how much blood you needed and, and that sort of thing and how far we've come. But over the course of, say, you know, 30 years, say, in America from the early 90s, by the time uh, it became an accepted science here uh, through repeated applications over and over again. And the more you get the same results, um, the more absolutely reliable that you know they are. And the more reliable they are, the more likely they are to be accepted in court as, you know, a circumstantial evidence of guilt or circumstantial evidence of innocence, depending on how you look at it. So um, it's a combination of law enforcement and uh, the collectors, the DNA, the, the laboratories. But I think primarily uh, from the laboratories themselves, how they go about collecting it, storing it, analyzing it to see if it does consistently come up with similar, um, you know, uh, results. And if you have those similar results through thousands of thousands of times uh, doing, you know, a sample analysis, um, then it will be accepted in, in a court of law. Uh, but that's as far as I can go. I don't know much more about how you analyze this. Um, you know, I remember back in 1989, how it all seemed so so new and new, but after 2001 and uh, after 9-11, it took so many leaps and bounds. You pretty much have to be in that field full-time, uh, learning every day about this uh, ever-changing, you know, uh, analysis. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, uh, Professor Gary is absolutely right that when we think about traditional genealogy, or sorry, traditional DNA, um, 
that took a lot of effort to get it into court for people to accept that this new science, this new technology, this new methodology was good enough to convict somebody. And so a lot of people spent a lot of time. In fact, the two founders of the Innocence Project were pivotal, interestingly enough, in getting uh, traditional DNA accepted in the courtroom. And so far that, that hasn't happened with SNP testing. Uh, but I expect in the next few years, perhaps even maybe this year, we're gonna see really concerted efforts by law enforcement, by uh, prosecutors, perhaps even by defense attorneys and people in the innocence world to try to get it so that courts will accept an identification based on SNP, uh, SNP comparisons. Um, so I, it gets a little bit sciencey when we get into this, but essentially SNPs have not gone through the validation process that STRs went through in the past. And so that's something that, uh, uh, like Professor Gary said, is going to have to involve labs uh, working in combination with prosecutors and law enforcement. Now, I think it's important to recognize that there's two elements, at least, uh, that are involved in investigative genetic genealogy. There's the lab side that really starts before we get involved. We don't consider that to be uh, you know, part of investigative genetic genealogy. That's really a forensic science lab doing the DNA profiling that needs to be done so that we can start doing our work. And so in addition to whatever regulations there are going to be around SNP technology, there are already regulations developing around investigative genetic genealogy and the practitioners. And so several states, beginning with Maryland, have started to put in place regulations that say how practitioners have to operate when they're doing this work. And uh, I will say that some of those states seem to be doing a better job than others. Uh, Utah, uh, sorry, Idaho recently passed a, was it, was it Utah, Karen, or was it Idaho? Utah has the law that I think had the most genealogists consulted for it. Yes. So Utah recently passed a law uh, regulating investigative genetic genealogy, and they really went out of their way to get input from people who do this work, not only investigative genetic genealogists, but people in the innocence world, to make sure that just as this methodology is going to be available to law enforcement, it's now in the law in Utah that if you are somebody who is in post-conviction, if you were wrongfully convicted, you can request access to IgG in the same way that you'd be able to request access to traditional DNA. So I think we're going to see more and more of this. More states are going to start to adopt regulations, and hopefully they will take the lesson of Utah instead of the lesson of, of some other states that will remain nameless uh, and actually reach out to people who know what they're doing in this field to make sure that they don't end up with some unintended consequences. Very interesting. Karen, you know, I want you to talk about you know, people hear about 23andMe, um, what the other one is? Um, Ancestry.com. Uh, Ancestry.com. I'm thinking I was going to say match.com. I'm in the wrong field. Uh, Ancestry.com. And uh, these guys found that really funny. And of course, uh, GedMatch. Now, could you uh, explain to our audience what those three um, different sites are? Sure. So when you are an individual that's looking to take a DNA test to find out more about your family history, your heritage, to solve the case of your adoption, you have a lot of different options. So probably your biggest and perhaps your best option would be Ancestry DNA. This is the DNA database that has the largest consumer, the largest amount of consumers inside of the database. 
It also um, sort of integrates people's family history and family tree information with their genetic information. So it's really, really great for family history searching. Then you've got 23andMe, which is the second largest commercial DNA database. And that one has some health additions that you can add on. So you can find out more about your chance of getting certain diseases in your future. Um, so that's another great option for DNA testers. Then there are a, a multitude of others. So MyHeritage, Family Tree DNA, all of us, um, you've got a, a really a whole lot of options as a consumer DNA tester. Now, when you're working with law enforcement to identify the suspect in a violent crime or a John or Jane Doe unidentified remains case, you only have two options for databases to pursue for identifying your subject and getting that genetic match list that I was talking about earlier. Those two options are Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch Pro. Those two databases combined have only about 3 million users altogether. So uh, Family Tree DNA has 1.4 million users and GEDmatch has 1.5 million users. Each of those users can opt in or opt out of law enforcement matching. So even if you are able to get your violent crime suspect uploaded into those databases, you might not be seeing all of the genetic matches that are in there because some people can opt out of searching. So it really uh, drives me a little crazy when I see in the headlines, um, ancestry database used to identify suspects in violent crime because it's not true. It wasn't the ancestry database. It was a database that is used for family history research sometimes, but it, it's the only ones that we have permission to use are Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. And so one way that people that are listening to this podcast right now can help solve crimes and help identify human remains is, you know, take your YouTube window that you have open right now, open another tab and search on YouTube how to upload to GEDmatch. And then take your Ancestry profile or your 23andMe profile, download it from those sites and upload into GEDmatch because when we have more users in the databases that we use for investigative genetic genealogy, it really increases our chance of solving cases. That's so interesting. You know, Phil, you had a question before about if law enforcement wants to re request some DNA from 23andMe and Ancestry.com, can they subpoena it or get a search warrant for it? Doc, maybe you should answer this. Yeah, so they can. And uh, there have been cases where law enforcement has requested not DNA itself, but matches to a particular person from Ancestry.com. Now, I know that Ancestry.com has taken the position that they will fight subpoenas to the greatest extent of the law. So they are not, uh, for whatever reason, I, I don't know exactly what is going on in their corporate world for why they've come down on this side but they do not want to be cooperative in this environment. So I believe they have had to turn over a match list in one case, uh, but I assume the law enforcement has tried it in other cases and maybe they just haven't been successful. Interesting. Phil, I'm sorry. I stole your question. Do you have another question? Well, no, that, that, that's fine. That's fine. Um, one, one point that I wanted to make, and I want to echo with both uh, 
uh, Professor uh, Gurney said and uh, Karen Binder about how we shouldn't rely on the DNA solely because I had a case in the early 90s where a homeless woman, I worked in the 6-0 precinct uh, detective squad in Coney Island, a homeless woman that had had a hut on the boardwalk in Coney Island had been murdered and raped. And um, the perpetrator that we later found out, uh, he had uh, been terrorizing prostitutes in the area and he was taking condoms from the prostitutes. So when we found the victim, she had a, a excessive amount of semen on her body. And when we arrested the perpetrator, he was very adamant about, yeah, take my DNA, take my DNA. At that time, DNA took a long time, six, eight weeks before we would get results back. So we thought that his DNA was going to be a match. Uh, his DNA wasn't a match. There were five different DNAs on that victim. And again, once we uh, did some uh, further investigation, our uh, uh, Michael Vecchione, who was the prosecutor in the case, was actually on our show. We were able to uh, come up with two other witnesses that were terrorized by this guy. So, again, uh, the fact that you have a piece of DNA that might link familiar or exact to a person, you need other components to proceed with a criminal case against a person. And, again, any person that is in jail and they're not supposed to be there because they're innocent. And this DNA technology can exonerate them by all means. Uh, that should be first and foremost in any of these cases. That That's just terrible that someone should spend time in jail for a crime that they didn't commit. You know, Karen, when I spoke to you on the phone, we had had a similar conversation to this. And I mentioned to you about uh, special victims unit detectives that do the cold DNA hits. And what that is for our audience is those are um, suspects or perpetrators who are convicted of another crime in prison, and then we get a DNA hit on them for a rape that could have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. And of course, the special victims detectives are very, very skilled at interviewing. They're some of the best interviewers I've seen. I was in the detective bureau for 16 years, my last 10 in homicide, and the special victims guys were just fantastic. And these two guys that I have in mind, um, uh, Sandemir and Tacky, were, were two of the best. And they would know, they would, they would go into the prison cell and, you know, introduce themselves, schmooze the guy. That's an Irish word, schmooze. They, <laughs> they'd schmooze the guy and get him to talk and they would, you know, build the whole thing. Have you ever been, you know, I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Have you ever been in this building? Never. Have you ever been in this apartment? Never. Do you know this woman? No, I don't. I don't know her. And then, you know, and I'm really cutting to the chase quickly. And at some point they would say, well, guess what? Have you ever had sex with that woman? They would, no, I never, I don't know. How could I have said, okay, well, your DNA was found on her and she, she claims you, you know, she filed a report for a rape and that's how they would proceed. So what you said, of course, has real meaning is that you have to build the investigative fence before you, you know, just try to jump through the opening because that's, you know, a traditional investigative means before you jump to the DNA. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of the show, The First 48. And so I watch them do that all the time where they kind of get the person to say, oh, no, I wasn't there. I wasn't, I don't have anything to do with that. No, nobody else had my car. Nobody else had my cell phone and really back themselves into a corner when they're confronted with all the evidence. So that piece is really so important. And that's why it kind of brings me back to what I said at the very beginning, which is that we're a tool in the law enforcement tool belt. Um, we are people that law enforcement can consult to help um, assist in um, a lead in a violent crime or um, identification of an unknown victim. Uh, but 
we're, we're only a piece of the puzzle. Every, every professional that touches these cases is really important from the forensic DNA scientists that do the traditional DNA testing to the law enforcement agents that initially investigate the case to um, the analysts that are working on things like pulling cameras and all, uh, cell phone records. All of that stuff has to, has to be there to make sure that you're getting the right person that committed the crime. That's that's fantastic, Mike. You got a uh... yeah. I, I think what Karen said is is really hitting the nail on the head. I remember being a patrolman in the four six, and you'd get uh, a couple of rapes that I've handled, and you'd you'd go to bring the uh, victim to the hospital. You'd ride in the ambulance. You'd, she'd uh, she would be examined, and then a little while later, you'd get the rape kit from the hospital, and you take it back to the precinct. And what'd you do? You gave it to the desk sergeant. You vouchered it and it got stuck up on top of the property locker. It wasn't handled properly. Uh, I'm sure the DNA inside was degraded. There was no refrigeration. There was no protocols. If it ever got down to the property clerk's office uh, for, or ME's office for analysis, uh, who knows what kind of shape it was in. This was one of the, a big problem. I, don't, I hope it's um, in, done better now, but I can say back in the 80s, we did not handle these this DNA evidence, or we didn't realize it was just DNA evidence. We just figured it was rape kit evidence, it was blood or semen. We didn't realize how vital it was to handle it properly so that when it is given to a lab, there is viable uh, you know, uh, DNA and it's, you're going to get viable results. And that's a shame because uh, the protocols on the police side for the regular patrolmen were not in place. And I'm sure a lot of people a lot of people were victimized that could that may not have been victimized if previous victims uh dna was handled properly and uh, it, i'm glad to hear that you have dna that is so um so uh quickly and maybe perhaps easily and with just a little bit of dna uh analyzed well that's that's a, a leap forward from far than anything i ever saw in my time in the police department well, Mike, I think that back then, uh, you know, well, who was the police commissioner, Teddy Roosevelt, back then? <laughs> Thank you, Billy. <laughs> well, I, I, I was just a little joke. Ben Wood. Back <laughs> ben Wood. No, but back then, it yeah. wasn't unusual for a DNA kit to sit on a warehouse shelf for three to five years. Yeah. So yeah. it was really ridiculous. There wasn't the money to do the testing. And if there was no suspect, they wouldn't test it at all. So, right. I mean, that's, a, you know... That's a whole thing, another subject. But it's just like that case that I spoke about in Memphis with Eliza Fletcher. Horrific that, you know, a rape against the, the uh, offender, a kit, was never submitted. And that would have prevented, a, 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 you know, a, a sex crime murder to, from occurring. Really, in, that, in that case, uh, he was captured because of his DNA. They they actually matched up his DNA. I believe it was within forty eight hours. Now, obviously, had that other uh, rape kit been tested, he may have been incarcerated at the time. But uh, his DNA was what captured uh, led to his capture. Bill, if you remember correctly. Yeah, no, I, I do remember it. I think it was even quicker than that. I think it was in less than twenty four hours. It was very Which, quick. I remember that. It was very quick. You know, when we were on the police department, we were always like, "Oh, DNA, three, four months, five months. If it's the president, yeah. maybe two months." You know. But it was, it was that crazy. But now, with this whole SNP thing, I mean, it's just—it's so incredible. It really is so incredible. And I didn't mean—I uh, mean, when I said before, this is like 
you know, an Albert Einstein, a Thomas Edison type breakthrough in science. It really is. It really is. Karen, who do you want to be, Albert Einstein or, or Edison? <laughs> um, Marie Curie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Louis Pasteur, the same people. <laughs> Madame Curie. I think we have to give that credit to people like Cece Moore and Barbara Ray Venter and Colleen Fitzpatrick and Margaret Press, uh, because they were really the ones who took this existing technology of SNP DNA uh, and realized what could be done with it in the forensic field. We're just sort of their minions. Absolutely. Uh, Professor Gurney, can I just ask a quick question? We talked about fourth and fifth and sixth cousin or, uh, you know, the familiar part of it. Could you kind of explain that a little more so the people that are watching can understand it? Uh, is it going back? Is it going sideways like to, to cousins? Can you explain that a little better, please? Yeah. So if anybody's ever taken a DNA test through Ancestry.com or Family Tree DNA, you'll know that one of the first things you see when you get your results back is a screen that shows your genetic matches. And so maybe your parents have taken a test and so they would be on top and it would show very clearly that they were your parents. Uh, maybe your first cousins have taken a test and it would say, okay, these are probably your first cousins, but most of your matches and you probably have thousands of them are gonna be much more distant, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth cousins. And so when we are working on a case, we are looking for the highest match in most cases. Uh, we are looking for who is going to be the person who is most closely related to our subject. And so if we imagine for a moment, and this doesn't happen very often anymore because the databases are so small, but in a really great case, we might get a second cousin. And so if we get a second cousin match, what that means in almost every case is that that person is going to share a pair of great grandparents with our subject. And so we would start by building up the family tree of that known person. Let's say the person's name is Bob Jones. We're gonna find Bob Jones's parents, probably using a combination of public records and social media um, and uh, even some stuff that we might find, find on ancestry.com, some public records from there. And we would then keep building back. We'd find Bob's grandparents, his two grandparent pairs. And then maybe at that point, we'd be able to access census records, depending on how old Bob is, and we would find his great-grandparents. Now we know, okay, one of those great-grandparent pairs has to be, if our theory is right, has to be one of the great-great-grandparent pairs of our subject as well. And so from, from that point, we would start building down from those great-grandparent pairs and looking for some context clues when we get to the generation of our subject. Because we might end up with, uh, you know, half a dozen people that could be our guy. But we want to look for context clues such as, is the person the right sex? You know, is it a male if it was a rape case? Um, were they living at the right place at the right time? And so those kinds of context clues and a few other tricks that uh, we use that make our job a little bit easier can help us narrow in on one or two individuals. So it's really a matter of building up the family tree to the most recent common ancestors and then building back down to the generation of the person you're looking for. Very interesting. Phil, I just want to go to a quick... We're going to go to a quick commercial and we're going to come back. 
Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe was a big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories, and a terrific criminal defense attorney. Karen, I wanted to ask, um, what are the limitations on this technology? Uh, you know, mixed samples, minority populations, that type of thing. Yeah, so there are some limitations right now. We've talked about how the science has come leaps and bounds, but um, there are still some things that could be improved upon in the future. So the first one would be mixed samples. Um, a mixture of, of two or more DNA profiles um, can be deconvoluted in some cases with traditional DNA testing. So uh, if you have a mixture of two suspect profiles, let's say um, it's a rape case and the person also has a consensual partner and so there's two male profiles. One, the, the person's consensual partner and the other is um, the actual suspect. So oftentimes that mixture could be deconvoluted with traditional DNA testing, but with SNP testing, there, uh, there's still some progress to be made. So if it's a very small amount of suspect DNA and a larger amount of victim DNA or a third party DNA, it's um, more difficult for them to obtain the profile for the suspect. So there's still some technology to be improved upon in terms of identifying a, a the suspect DNA and deconvoluting those mixtures. The other one that you mentioned is minority population. So we know um, generally uh, Americans who are Caucasian love to take DNA tests. Uh, the Ancestry DNA database, the 23andMe database, mostly full of Caucasian people. Um, there are fewer minority population DNA testers already in those databases. And then when you look at the databases that we're allowed to use, Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch for investigative genetic genealogy. Um, those DNA databases contain a much smaller population than the large commercial DNA databases. So when it comes to minority populations, you're looking at a subset of a subset. So if we have a suspect or an unidentified human remains case that comes from a minority population, it's gonna be a lot more difficult to identify that person than if it was a Western European person. So um, I work primarily on unidentified human remains cases. And I, I'll tell you right now, if, I, if I'm getting a, a case of a Caucasian person, I might solve that in a few hours with a team or uh, a few days, a few weeks. If it's a minority population case, it could take weeks to months to years to solve that case, or perhaps it might not be solved at all because they have fewer genetic matches in the DNA database. So it's harder to build out and figure out their family tree than it would be with a Western European person that has great genetic matches. Very fascinating. You know, there's a great question from uh, the chat. Professor Geary, may you possibly explain the rights of Americans and how uploading your personal DNA sample may be conflicting? This could either go to uh, Mike after you, uh, uh, Dr. Gurney can touch this after you, Mike. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you, I, I remember in, in the article that uh, it's on your website at RCC, um, you touched on the idea about what are people giving consent 
for their uh, DNA analysis uh, to be analyzed by law enforcement. Um, I took a DNA, I, I did you know, like Ancestry.com and I did 23andMe and uh, I got my results back and then I was prompted to say, you know, would you like to uh, open up your DNA to analysis and see prior, uh, you know, distant relatives and things like that, not just where you're from. I said, yeah, as a matter of course, it was kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, th that sort of thing. If I, I would rather knowingly do something like that or knowingly allow my DNA to be part of a database that the law enforcement could uh, analyze, um, I would want that privacy right to be respected. Uh, yes or no. And if I said yes, I'm knowingly waiving my privacy rights. If I say no, then I would rather not have it. And as Karen, you pointed out, there's a cultural, there might be a cultural barrier to this too, not just a uh, somebody's interested in it. It might, it might be that some people might be culturally more, as you say, more accepting of uh, the wider um, testing and uh, maybe more free with their information. But uh, I would prefer that law enforcement, if they want to uh, get a, get an, a, do it, uh, access a database, um, that they would at least notify a person if they are involved in in some way that their DNA may have been matched to a suspect like a violent rapist or a killer uh, in some way that might be third, fourth, or fifth cousin. I think that would be at least respectful. Um, beyond that, you know, Dr. David probably know uh, a whole other angle on that. So I'll just say that we, we're kind of talking about two different groups of people here when we think about the Bill of Rights, and I, I assume you're talking about the Fourth Amendment. So when you think about the, the subject, the person who's left their DNA behind at the crime scene, you know, a, a rapist or a murderer who cuts themselves, the evidence at the crime scene that they leave behind, does, they do not have any Fourth Amendment protections in that evidence. You give up any right to evidence. I mean, it's sort of the ultimate application of the third-party doctrine. You've turned over your bodily fluids to the public by committing this crime. And so you've, you've given up any Fourth Amendment protections in it. When it comes to individuals who have uploaded to Family Tree DNA or GEDmatch, uh, like Professor Gary said, that is by consent. So you have to actually check a box on GEDmatch saying, I opt in to IgG searching. And on Family Tree DNA, by agreeing to their terms, you're also agreeing to the part that says, I opt in to IgG searching. So there's not really a Fourth Amendment issue there either. Um, even in the cases, uh, I'm a little bit reluctant to talk about this, but even in the cases where law enforcement or an IgG practitioner decides to upload to a database that doesn't allow IgG searching, there's probably not a Fourth Amendment issue there because even though you haven't agreed to have your DNA searched in those databases, you still have turned it over to that third party. However, the big caveat, and I think this is really important to say, is that Karen and myself and almost every other IgG practitioner I know is very, very much opposed to using a database that does not allow for IgG searching in the terms of service. We think that by doing that, that undermines the public's trust in this methodology and will actually allow, to, uh, it will likely lead to more regulations that will make it harder to do this work. So everyone should be abiding by the terms of service and making sure that they're doing as Professor Gary said, and respecting the privacy rights of people who are either volunteering or not to participate in this. Fantastic.
You know, guys, we're already uh, over an hour, and I don't like to keep you much more. Would you guys at least um, maybe make a, a little bit of a promise you're going to be uh, to come back another time? Absolutely. I would love to have you guys. I would love to have you guys come back and actually talk about like a real case. Yeah. That, that, well, we have some great cases right now that have New Jersey and New York connections. And so we would love to come back and talk about that. I, I know you do. And that's why I want you to commit to coming back because it, it is so uh, wildly interesting to me and every one of our listeners. I'm going to give everyone a round to ask one more question and then we'll, we'll uh, let you guys go. Phil, final question. Oh, final question. Listen, uh, maybe it'll be a comment. Thank you for coming on. I'm interested in you guys coming back on and talking about uh, a case. Uh, it's, this stuff is just so fascinating. It's unbelievable that you can go th uh, fifth, sixth cousin and uh, come up with uh, a person that might be linked to, uh, you know, a violent crime. And again, I don't think that people that are in the underworld or in involved in criminal activity are going to be loading their DNA up to uh, these sites. However, uh, family members may, and I think that's going to be very helpful going forward uh, in law enforcement for us. And, you know, obviously in the Brian Kohlberger case, uh, the DNA was right there and very, very helpful. But there's all the other technology, the cell phone technology, the video cameras, the uh, the cell sites, the uh, traffic cameras, all the different things. And again, uh, we have the old fashioned way, the eyewitness testimony sometimes, too. So, again, thank you so much for coming on, guys. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to you guys coming back on again. Thank you. you know, I, Mike, I'm going to jump ahead because I don't want to forget this question. <laughs> Would it be helpful if, say, CODIS was loaded into GEDmatch? Well, it would be like trying to get a floppy disk to work in a CD-ROM drive. So unfortunately, <laughs> um, that's not going to happen. Uh, it's, a, it's two different types of DNA testing. Um, and... I think with that, you know, with SNP testing, you can look at a lot more of a person's health information and their genetic information than you can with an STR test. So I've heard some people say things like we should compel people that are convicted criminals to upload their DNA into SNP testing databases. I don't I don't think that you could get very far with that argument because you'd be asking them to give up um, maybe a lot more of their information. But I'll let Dr. Gurney comment on that, too. I think Karen said it well. It's just, it's two different, completely different kinds of DNA profile. Uh, so it's not possible to do a direct comparison. It's almost like the two things would pass right by each other. Interesting. That Professor was a great Mike. question, Bill. <laughs> Professor Mike. First, just thank you very, very much for coming on. This is great. And it is just really, uh, you know, blows your mind to think about what is going on with DNA and, and the possibilities in the next couple of years are just endless. And then you also see on the other side of it, how it could be misused and people's privacy could be invaded. It's amazing. I want to read more about it. And I, I want to be there when you guys come back on the show. It's fantastic. Thank you very, very much. Absolutely. Guys, on behalf of uh, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, I want to thank Professor Karen Bindup. Oh, by the way, is also a registered nurse. I left that out in the introductions. And Dr. David Gurney, uh, who's also got a law degree. Uh, I want to thank them so much uh, for coming on the show. This has really been eye-opening. And I want to wish you the greatest success with the IgG um, course. In fact, you're the only um, course of this type, certificate course in the world. Is that is that correct? We are the only IgG center in the world.
so we're we're the only ones that have uh, a practice arm and a course but we're not the only course but uh, people can check us out and if you want to learn how to do investigative genetic genealogy go to remapo.edu igg and i will just say you know it's been wonderful being here and talking to you and your listeners and i just want to emphasize how important it is if people want to help out with this take a dna test through family tree dna or through ancestry and then upload it to gedmatch because one person can make a difference your dna might match to you might be a third cousin to one of the most notorious crimes of the 20th century some of which are being worked on by igg practitioners right now and we're just waiting for the right match to come along and that might be you fantastic guys thank Good you point. so much uh, guys, uh, on behalf of Police Off the Cuff, have a great night. All our listeners, God bless. Uh, Thank thanks you. for tuning in. Thank you, guys. Thank Stay you. safe, everyone. One episode, just